0: Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. You know, one of the, um, amongst many benefits, one of the benefits of expository preaching, preaching where... There's preaching of God's Word and you go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. One of the things that it ensures is that we don't skip things in the Bible. That we don't stick to certain favorite things that are there in the Bible that we might, you know, be be more prone to. uh, But we would actually go through the whole counsel of God's Word and why that is important is that if we simply stick to certain passages that we might particularly like and then just skip some of the other passages we don't understand the entirety of God's Word we don't understand the entirety of who God is and his plans and his ways and we And when we understand less God and his ways and his character, then that impacts our life too, right? And so this morning, we come to a passage that is difficult, difficult, not in the sense difficult to understand, but it is a hard truth about God and the kind of God we serve. It is a passage that talks talks about God who is just. It's a passage that talks about the fact that God will judge all those who will reject His grace and His provision that has been given in and through Jesus. Now I want to just remind you that just the, the way the author has been, the author of Hebrews has been using this book of Hebrews. He often uses warnings and so that's the negative encouragement, so to speak, and then positive encouragement by way of promises and talking about who Christ is and what we can expect. And how we should understand the warnings in the book of Hebrews is that it is just that, a warning. And for those who are true believers, for those who are true Christians, will heed the warning that the author says. And so then the warning becomes the means by which he helps Christians to continue to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and to continue in the faith. And so that's essentially what he's doing here, even though this is a very stern warning, even though it is a very sobering warning, that is the purpose of why he's warning his listeners, so that ultimately they would heed his warning and they would be encouraged to continue to follow Jesus and and to continue in the faith. Now the author has you know, in the initial chapters, has talked to us about the the wonders of Jesus and His work, particularly His priestly work and His great sacrifice. And last week we saw, in light of that, how we are to live. There are certain responsibilities that we have, and if we truly understand this is who Jesus is and this is what He has done, We need to live in a certain way, especially within the congregation of God's people, within the assembly of God's people. And now, he's going to, because of a concern that he has with his listeners, he's going to now also put in a stern warning there. And that's what we're going to look at. And I trust that as a result, we would see just how just God is just how true he is, just how much he abhors sin, and particularly uh, anyone who rejects his grace in Jesus. But it would also remind us of the grace, the abounding grace that has been shown in and through Jesus. So just in terms of the outline and and what this uh, sermon will be about, I've titled this morning's sermon, as the terror of rejecting Jesus, or the terror of rejecting God's provision in Jesus. And in verses 26 and 27, we'll look at the sober warning. And in verses 28 through to 31, we'll look at the severe judgment. He's just really going to talk further about how severe the judgment is for all those who will reject God's provision in Jesus. So let's look first at the sober warning, verses 26 and 27. Verse 26 first. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now this is not talking about, when he's talking about these sins here, this is not talking about the Christians daily fight with sin. You know, every Christian knows they sin daily. And sometimes as Christians, we can even willfully sin. Now, for example, when a child, perhaps, is throwing a tantrum and refusing to obey at home, sometimes as parents we can get angry, willfully, knowingly, even though we know it's sin, sometimes we can knowingly get angry still. Other times, a Christian may be caught up in some sort of habitual sin, and they don't know how to get out of it. And that's also possible for a Christian to be in. And if that is you this morning, I want to encourage you to talk to one of the elders or perhaps one of the members here in this church so that we can help you work through that sin issue. And so yes, all Christians struggle with sin in different ways and sometimes willfully and sometimes even in an ongoing way for a period of time. If you're, a, if you're not a Christian this morning, I just want to, first of all, welcome you to our gathering. We're so happy you're here. But I do want you to understand that Christians are not perfect people. We do sin. In fact, if you paid attention this morning, you know, our brother Wes came up and read the Bible and then he led us in a prayer of praise and then confession. Why do we do that week in and week out? Why do we have that prayer of confession? Because it is to help us recognize that in light of how glorious God is, that we still sin. And it is acknowledging that, that we still have fallen short of giving glory to God. That we still have fallen short of that standard God called us to live even this past week. And so through that prayer of confession, it is helping us see more of our sin as God sees it, so that as Christians, we would never minimize our sin, that we would never normalize our sin. And as we even corporately confess it together and say amen, that it would encourage us then to then cling on to Jesus. And it would cause us then to repent of our sins and to keep following Jesus and being obedient to Him. So the mention of sins here in verse 26. This is not talking about these daily struggles that the Christian has with sin. This is talking about when a person willfully intentionally in a continuous way goes on sinning this has become their lifestyle and then on top of that this person refuses to repent refuses to turn away from their sin even after receiving the knowledge of the truth is what the text says what knowledge of truth the truth about who Jesus is The truth about what Jesus has done and the truth about how one then must live in light of who Jesus is and what he has done. This is a person who has full knowledge of the truth of Jesus and how one is to then respond to him. But then this person turns away from it all. Listen to Proverbs 2.13. Describes this sort of person says this is the kind of person who forsakes the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. That's what this person is doing. See, a person who turns away from Jesus, oftentimes, it's not oftentimes, invariably, their life will also start looking different. It will start looking more like those in the world, those who are unbelievers. You know, there are different kinds of unbelievers in the world. And if, if I were to just go by what this text is saying, I could group them under, I- into two groups, two groups of unbelievers as per this text. There are those who've never stepped foot into a gospel preaching church and they've never heard the good news of Jesus. That's one kind of unbeliever. That's one kind of person who is not a Christian. Then there are those who are in the church. Perhaps they've been coming to this gospel preaching church from when they were little babies. Or maybe they've been attending a gospel-preaching church since they've been adults. In any case, this second group of unbelievers are those who understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, who Jesus is and what He has done, and were perhaps even part of the church and identified as Christians. And there seem to be some sort of a positive response to Jesus for a season in their life. But then, after some time, they deliberately reject the gospel of Jesus. They don't hold on to the hope that they have in Jesus. And invariably, they forsake gathering together with God's people, the church. That's the logic of what the author is saying here. Remember, last week we learned... You know, as the author told us, in light of Jesus' sacrifice and in light of his ongoing priestly work for his people, as Christians, he called us to do three things. He said, keep on drawing near to God, keep on holding fast to the hope that we have in Jesus. And then he said, and don't forsake the gathering, but keep on gathering with God's people. Why? To encourage one another. As you know, the day of Jesus' return is drawing near. And then he starts, if you look at verse 26 again, with the word, for, if we keep on sinning. That word for, it connects to what has just been said before, meaning that if we understand the truth of, about Jesus and what He has done, and we don't draw near to God, and we don't hold on to the hope, and we forsake the gathering of God's people, that is the deliberate ongoing sin that the author is now talking about. For such a person who claimed to be a Christian for a while, but now rejects Jesus and as a result doesn't live that kind of Christian life that they are called to live, even after having full knowledge of the truth. And the author says, for such a person, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. See, the animal sacrifices under the old covenant had become obsolete. Besides, you know, as we've seen in the book of Hebrews, these animal sacrifices only served as shadows, pointing to that ultimate sacrifice that God would provide in Jesus. And so if a person rejects God, Jesus' once and for all sacrifice for the sin of his people... The author is saying, there's no other sacrifice that can help. There's no other sacrifice that can make atonement for sin. There's no other sacrifice that can bring about forgiveness of your sins. In fact, the author says, all that remains for such a person is the judgment of God. Look at verse 27. So there's, for such a person, there's no longer any sacrifice for sin, verse 27, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. I want you to just think about this. Why was there ever need for a sacrifice in the first place as we've been, as we've looked at in the book of Hebrews? Hebrews. Well, the sacrifice was there to satisfy the just wrath of God. Why was there the wrath of God? Because of the sin of His people. And so this is what the animal sacrifices symbolized for the Israelites for many years. That a sacrifice was needed to to satisfy God's just wrath for the sin of His people. And God ultimately provided a way of escape from His just wrath by the sacrifice of His own Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross in the place of wicked sinners like you and me. But then, if this is God's provision, and a person then rejects this provision of Jesus' sacrifice and all that means for them to therefore respond and live in a certain way, The only thing that remains is a certain expectation of God's just wrath in the raging fires of hell. In fact, such a person is called, as the text says, as an adversary or an enemy of God. See, this is the person that we would call as an apostate. Now, as I've mentioned previously, uh, when we looked at the warning passage in Hebrews 6, an apostate is not someone who was a Christian and then turned away from the faith. No, that's not possible because the Bible teaches that a Christian cannot lose their salvation. Why? Because salvation is completely a work of God. And if someone has been saved and someone has been born again, God will make sure that these believers, these true believers, will be secure and will be saved right to the very end. So a true believer cannot lose their salvation. They will not reject the gospel of Jesus ever if someone is a true Christian. But an apostate is someone who calls himself a Christian. Had a positive response to the gospel. Even lived like a Christian for a while. But then turned away. And rejected Jesus and his people, the church. And after a season, it became very evident that they had no faith in the first place to begin with that's what an apostate is listen again to the words of 1 John 2:19 they went out from us but they were not of us for if they had been of us they would have continued with us what is the verse saying That those who reject Jesus are also those who reject his people, the church. And they prove by their actions that they were never believers in the first place. Now when you look at the author and what he's doing here. Now he's not suggesting to his Hebrew Jewish Christians that they have all become apostate. But he is concerned that these Jewish Christians, because they're being persecuted, they're beginning to doubt following Jesus. They're beginning to not hold highly who Jesus is and what he has done, and their full devotion is not toward him. Their eyes are not fully focused on Jesus at this point. And this is evidenced by the fact that some are even beginning to forsake the gathering because of this persecution. Gathering with the church. And you might be thinking, but but what's the danger in that? You know, what's so special about gathering with the church? Because the author is concerned, if they're going to do that, they're going to compromise themselves further. They're going to go further and further away from the many reminders of the gospel of Jesus, even as they start becoming absent from the gathering of the church. And ultimately, that they won't hold fast to the certain hope that they have in Jesus, and they will altogether abandon the faith. Again, not saying that they will lose their salvation But they will prove, if they actually do that, that they are unbelievers in the first place. That they didn't have faith in the first place. But if they are truly believers, they will heed the warning and not do that. So that's why the author is using the strongest of warnings, strongest language possible, and giving such a sober warning. And if you notice, he includes even himself, where he says, if we go on sinning, that we can all be in danger of this. If we keep on neglecting what we are called to do in light of what Jesus has done, this is a slippery path to be on. It is the path that leads to apostasy and the only thing that awaits an apostate in the end is the judgment of god that's the logic of what he's saying you know sometimes you know we think we know ourselves really well and we know our own hearts But the Bible tells us a different story, that our hearts are exceedingly deceitful. The Bible makes very clear that we can even deceive ourselves. Sometimes, you know, we can deceive ourselves and we can even sometimes put on a show and deceive others. And that's why, in the words of, uh, you know, my previous pastor, God has put us in local churches where we let other people get to know our lives. That is the importance of the church gathering and being part of the church and for other people to get to know you in the church. See, the less you let other people get to know you, the less useful the church becomes to you when this is such a means of grace that God has given to you. But the more you let other people get to know you, The more you let other people help you be accountable to various things and for them to help you understand what it means to be a Christian and to hold on to the hope that you have in Jesus, that is what is going to help you to persevere so that you won't bring down Jesus to some level here and then start following the world. See, brothers and sisters, I, I, you know, in light of what the author is saying here, he's saying, if you heed the warning, and you don't do that, you don't neglect these things that you're called to do in light of what Jesus has done, then there is no fearful expectation coming toward you. This warning will not come true of you if you heed the warning. And so I just want to say as we, in light of what the author is saying, that to stop attending the church gathering and to become more and more sparse and ultimately not belong to a church or to be away from God's people, that's a sure step towards apostasy. So that's the sober warning that the author gives. And now he's going to really talk about the severity of, uh, of the judgment that will come towards an apostate in verses 28 to 31. He, he, he's going to ramp it up a little bit more. And the author goes from a lesser to a greater argument. And here he's comparing the judgment for rejecting the law of Moses to the severity of the judgment that will come to those who reject the revelation that comes through Jesus. Look at what he says in verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now this was taken from... Uh, Deuteronomy 17 and this was part of our Bible reading and I just want to read that passage once again Deuteronomy 17 verses 2 to 7 so you understand what the author is saying here Deuteronomy 7 2 to 7 if there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you a man or a woman who "...who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, in transgressing his covenant, and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun, or the moon, or any host of the heaven, which I have forbidden, and has told you, and you hear of it, and then you shall inquire diligently, and if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel... Then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing. And you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death. And afterward, the hand of all the people. And so you shall purge the evil from your midst. So this is particularly with regards to the sin of idolatry. When they've forsaken the God who has revealed himself to the people of Israel and they've gone after idols. Just turn with me to just one more passage. Numbers 15 verses 30 and 31. This is what it says. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he's a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his command, that person shall be utterly cut off, his iniquity shall be on him. And there's a few other passages as well that talk about high-handed sins. But when you put it all together, here's here's what it means. In the Old Testament, uh, under the Old Covenant, for deliberate, intentional sins, for high-handed sins, where the, the person essentially says, I don't care about my relationship with the Lord. I don't care about that there were no sacrifices for those type of sins you know high handed sins would be sins like idolatry for example that we had read about it could be high handed sins like murder you know and other sorts of high handed sins like that there were no sacrifices for such egregious sins because it showed that the person had utter disregard For their relationship with God and His covenant. I mentioned a few weeks ago that this was King David's plight in Psalm 51. And that's why he was so mournful. Because he had committed murder and committed adultery. So such a person under the old covenant. Because the sin was so severe. First of all, this sin had to be confirmed without any doubt. How would you do that? You would have to do that not just by one witness, but you had to have two or three witnesses. And so if the sin was then confirmed without a shadow of doubt by these two or three witnesses, then the person would be stoned to death, cut off from the people of God, and would not be shown any mercy. And the author's point is this, if a person under the old covenant was proven by two or three witnesses to willfully reject the law of Moses and he was put to physical death without any mercy, then how much more severe will be the judgment for those who apostatize under the new covenant because of how atrocious this apostasy is under the new covenant in fact look at the way the author even describes what apostasy is or what the apostate has done using three phrases in verse 29 we'll look at it one by one so the argument goes if it was physical death and no mercy by the witness of two or three witnesses under the old covenant verse 29 how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved By the one, first description of the apostate, who has trampled underfoot the Son of God. That's the first description of the apostate. He has trampled underfoot the Son of God. You know, those who have been with us from the beginning of Hebrews, we learnt in Hebrews 1 that God had given His final and ultimate revelation in His Son. That God's the Son of God is the highest revelation that God can give, Hebrews 1 said. Why? Because He's the heir of everything. He's the mediator of creation. He's the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God. In other words, God's Son is God Himself. And therefore the most qualified person to be God's final and ultimate revelation to God's mankind. God's son is the best and clearest way any man or woman can come to know God. His son, Jesus, is God's gracious revelation to mankind. But the author says the apostate has trampled underfoot the Son of God. To trample underfoot is to just treat something as worthless. To treat it as garbage. Or, or, you know, as one commentator said, it's like you see a bug on the floor and you just walk over it because you just don't care about it. The apostate is one First of all, who has rejected the work of God the Father, who had sent his Son to reveal himself to mankind. So that's the first description of an apostate. Somebody who rejects the work of God the Father, who sent his Son to reveal himself to mankind. That's what trampling under the, underfoot the Son of God means. Look at the way the apostate is described a second time. Verse 29 again and continuing. And has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Now blood of the covenant, what is that referring to? That's referring to the death of Jesus that brought into effect the new covenant. Shedding of blood means death. And so blood of the covenant means death of Jesus that brought into effect the new covenant. And it is through the death of Jesus... That a believer is sanctified, meaning uh, someone is set apart as being holy in God's sight and becomes in their person from the inside out more and more holy. So when you think about this apostate, there was a time when the apostate seemed to be sanctified, at least in an outward sense. He was happy to be set apart and be counted as part of the Christians, to be counted as part of God's people, to be counted as part of the church. And there seemed to be some sort of conformity even in this person's life to live the Christian life. And this person was doing this because he seemed to believe in what Jesus had done on the cross. That he seemed to believe in the blood of the covenant or the blood of Jesus. But now he rejects the work of Jesus on the cross. And so the text says he has profaned the blood of the covenant. Meaning he treats the blood of Jesus as unholy. Meaning he treats Jesus' death as no different from the death of any other ordinary man oh poor Jesus, he died on the cross, you know, yeah, he was murdered by some people, but that's different from other men and women who get murdered every now and then. And and what the apostate implies by that is that Jesus' death has no real power to cleanse us of our sins and to sanctify us and set us apart and make us holy before God. I mean, can you think about this? The eternal Son of God came down into this world and took on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And he dies on the cross bearing the whole wrath of God on himself in the place of sinners. Not because he was sinful, because he took the place of sinners and he took the wrath of God on himself. Why? So that all who would trust in Jesus would be made right and holy in God's eyes. And the apostate says, nah. There's nothing special about Jesus' death on the cross. It's just like the death of any other ordinary man. So secondly, what the author is trying to imply is that for the apostate, it is a rejection of the work of God the Son on the cross. So first, it was a rejection of the work of God the Father in sending His Son to reveal Himself, in sending the Son of God to reveal Himself. Secondly, the apostasy is a rejection of the work of God the Son on the cross. And there's a third description of the apostate. He says, and has outraged the Spirit of grace. This is, the ref- this is a reference to... The work of the Holy Spirit. That's the spirit that is being referred to. Now for those of you who are not Christians, I want to say the Holy Spirit is, is not just some, you know, some force. No, He is a person. He is the third person of the Trinity, of the triune God. And one of the main jobs of the Holy Spirit is to shine the spotlight on Jesus. See, it is the Holy Spirit who graciously brings the gospel of Jesus Christ to people. And it is the Holy Spirit then who, after he has brought the gospel of Jesus Christ to people, then he works in their lives and brings about the effects of the gospel of Jesus in that believer's life. And so when you think about it from the apostate perspective, the apostate would have once said, oh yes, the, the Holy Spirit has, has made the gospel of Jesus alive in me. I believe it to be true. And he's effecting a change in me. That's what the apostate said for a while. But then after some time, he says, no, no, I reject the gospel of Jesus. And he just goes back into the world. And he forsakes the people of God even. And what he's doing by that is he's making a mockery of the work of the Holy Spirit. The text says the apostate has outraged the Holy Spirit of grace that has been so gracious. This is how one commentator put it, quote, the apostate has, in effect, spit in the face of God and dishonored and disrespected and insulted everything we know to be true of the Holy Spirit, End quote. So this is a rejection of the work of God, the Holy Spirit. So understand what the author is trying to say here. If under the old covenant a person was proven by two or three witnesses to deliberately reject their relationship with God and God's law, then think about the apostate who is now deliberately chosen to reject God's grace under this new covenant. See, what you have here is not three human witnesses. But you have the witness of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit to prove how severe your sin is. And what a powerful witness that is. It's greater than any human witness or any of the previous witnesses that were there. So if you've got the infallible three persons of the Trinity testifying against you and your grievous sin the author says how much more severe will be the judgment compared to those under the old covenant whose sin was proven by mere two or three human witnesses. The judgment that will be more severe is nothing but eternal death as the bible calls it that's eternal separation from the favor of god and eternal judgment in hell now verses 30 and 31 explain why god must judge essentially because this is who god is this is his character look at verse 30 for, again connecting now to what he has just said. For we know him, the kind of God he is, who has said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. These are two quotations from Deuteronomy 32. You know, it's called the Song of Moses, Deuteronomy 32. And it talks about the goodness and the grace of God toward Israel. But in that song, it also talks about the fact that Israel will reject God's grace and rebel against Him. And so God says that He will judge those who reject His grace. And so the author is saying, so, so we know this God. We know this from the Old Testament. This is who God is. He will judge Those who reject him and his grace. This is certain. Judgment is certain for those who will reject him. And then the author concludes this section in verse 31 by saying, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He's reminding us he's the living God. He's not just an idol made of wood or stone. He's not a figment of someone's imagination. No, he's the one true living God who lives forevermore. And he says, uh, falling into the hands, falling into one's hands has the idea of coming under the power of someone. And the first thing that came to mind was, you know, when you think of, say, a strong person holding you by the collars and holding you. Under His power, you know that you've come under that person's power. I mean, think about this God, this this one true living God. He's a God who is all knowing. He has full knowledge of us, every sin of ours, even in thought that we have tried to do in you know just in our minds. He has full knowledge of it. And we also know that God is all-powerful, that there's no one who is more powerful than him. And so the author is saying, so for all those who reject what he has provided in and through his son Jesus, it will be a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the one true living God. You know, so many people in this world these days, they deny the reality of hell. You know, they think, oh, God would send people to hell? You know, I, 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 don't, I don't believe that. Well, my friend, if you're thinking that way, I, I, I want to unapologetically tell you you are not the ultimate source of knowledge; God is, and God has revealed Himself in the pages of the Bible. And He says there is a hell. Listen to the description of hell that is given in Second Thessalonians one seven to nine. Second Thessalonians one seven to nine the lord jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know god and on those who do not obey the gospel of our lord jesus they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the lord and from the glory of his might so it doesn't matter what you or i think it doesn't change reality. You know, I, I could go stand on top of a fifth-story building and say, you know, I don't believe in gravity. I believe I can fly, and then I jump off. That's not going to help me, because it does not change reality. And the Bible very clearly says, God clearly says in His Word, that there is a hell. It's not something that is made up. And then there's some who would say, sure, there might be a hell, but, you know, it's not an ongoing hell. People might be judged, and they will be judged, and they will just be obliterated. They'll just be annihilated. Let me read to you just a few verses, just to refute that kind of thinking. Matthew 18, 8 describes hell as eternal fire, meaning a fire that will go on for eternity and it will never stop. Mark 9 and 48 describes hell as a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, meaning those who are put in that eternal fire Fire does not consume the worm or anyone in there, but they will continually burn in pain, but they will never be obliterated, but they will experience eternal punishment and pain for the rest of eternity. Listen to Matthew 13:49 and 50. So it will be at the end of age. And the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, not that they will all be annihilated and cease to exist, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So people don't go out of oblivion. They're not simply annihilated. Those who reject God's provision in and through His Son will suffer an eternity in hell in that painful, eternal pit of fire. Now some of you might be thinking, but, but, but I don't understand. But I, I, I thought the God of the Bible is a God of love and mercy and grace. Yes, He is. But He's also a God who's just and holy and righteous. Righteous. And so what that means is that if there is a sinner in front of him, he has to judge. Otherwise, God would not be good. I've used this example many times. It's like if you have a judge and someone like Hitler stood in front of the judge. And the judge says, I'm a good judge. I'm just going to let him go. He won't have the death sentence or he won't be penalized for the rest of his life to imprisonment. Everyone around will say, that's not a good judge, that's a bad judge. And so it's precisely because God is good and just and holy, he must, he must punish sin and sinners. If he doesn't, he is not a holy and just and righteous God and he will cease to be God. But I also want you to understand that it is precisely because God is just and does not take sin lightly He provided His Son and for Him to die on that cross. See, the greatest proof that God abhors sin is when you look at that cross. When God poured out his just and good wrath for the sin of people like you and me on his beloved son, Jesus. Jesus who took the place of sinners and took the punishment for sinners like you and me. See, that's where you see the just God the righteous god and the god who is merciful and loving and gracious so friend that's the kind of god you want a god who's righteous and just a god who will avenge the hitlers of this world and all the others who have done wrong you want a god who's righteous but if he's only righteous then you are i i in trouble See, friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, see, the fact that God hasn't killed you as yet and you're not in hell already, I would say that's God's grace and mercy to you even now. Do you realize that? The fact that you're listening to this sermon today about the holiness and the justice of God and that judgment is certain for all who will reject His Son and what He has provided in and through His death on the cross, is God's grace to you that you are listening to this. So I would say to you, friend, humble yourself and turn to the cross and see what God has done in and through Jesus as He crushed His Son for sinners like you and me so that the price of sin can be paid and all who would trust Jesus would be forgiven of their sin and made right with God. For those of us who are Christians, may we never be prideful thinking, oh, you know, we're fine. We've been made right with God. But I understand this is the God that we serve. And the abounding grace that He has shown to You and I who are Christians, and never take lightly of who Jesus is and what he has done. And if we truly recognize that, then we would live our lives accordingly by gathering with God's people, which is the stimulus for us to then further be reminded of the gospel and then to hold on to the hope that we have in Christ and keep drawing near to God. May all those who have ears heed this warning that this author has given to us this morning let's pray together father we thank you that you are you're a great god that you are a perfect and holy god and you are unlike any human being or any leader or any king human king that we know Yet we thank you that you have revealed yourself in and through your word and in and through your son. We thank you for your holiness. We thank you that you are just and righteous and so one day you will make things right. And we we thank you that those who, for all the injustice in this world, for all those people, they will answer to you finally. And we thank you for that. And yet, Lord, we recognize that all of us, every man and woman, stands guilty before you because we know that we are all sinful. And you are too holy to, to wink at our sin, no matter how small we think it is. In your eyes, every sin is, is too much for such a pure and holy God. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Thank you that you poured your wrath on him. And he died in the place of sinners. So that all who trust in him and follow him would know that they have a right relationship with you. And would enjoy all the privileges that come with that. Lord, we pray that we would heed this warning and help us to therefore live our Christian lives along with the people of God, not forsaking the gathering of God's people, but even as we live lives together, even with our weaknesses, that you would further stimulate us to look to Jesus, our Savior and our Lord and our priest, and that we would continue to draw near to you. We ask in prayer all these things for Jesus' name's sake. Amen.